All right. Let different words be spoken. Let's open up to the book of Hebrews. Been in Genesis for uh, quite a long time. We're going to be looking at Hebrews for quite a long time. That's on page 1178 of the Pew Bible. Just keep it open on your lap there. In the last book in the Narnia classic series of books, the the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, and C.S. Lewis is describing the spiritual life. In the last battle, every person that had traveled to Narnia as a child returns to help save it one last time. Everyone except Susan. We get a few details about her throughout the book. But then at the end of the book, High King Peter is asked pointedly where Susan is. And he says... My sister Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. Eustace, who's by his side, pipes in and says, Yes, and whenever you've tried to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, What wonderful memories you have. Fancy, you're still thinking about those funny games we used to play when we were children. You see, Susan thought that she had become too old, too grown up, too mature for Aslan and Narnia. And though she had experienced it once, she had left it behind. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is written to prevent. The Susan Syndrome. People who are tempted to leave the faith. People who are tempted to turn their back on Christ. People who have experienced the Christian life. But as, as Asaph said in Psalm 73, whose foot is beginning to slip, whose grip is beginning to loosen. To people like that, The book of Hebrews is written. And the author wastes no time in getting to the crux of the matter. He wants to start out with a thick foundation. And we see that thick foundation in the first three verses of the book. Look with me at God's word. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When Charles Spurgeon was 
preaching this text on May 21st, 1882, he announced his congregation, I have nothing to do tonight except preach Christ. And that's exactly the same today. These three verses lay the foundation for all the author is going to say. He's going to go back to this foundation again and again and again and again throughout the 13 chapters we have. He's going to use what is said here to prove the rest of his points. But to understand why the author opens up in such a, such a heavy way, such an attention style, getting style, we have to be familiar with three bits of information as we begin our study together. Three things. First thing is Hebrews is written about 30 to 40 years after Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Somewhere in the mid-60s, probably the mid to late 60s A.D., before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., it's assumed that the temple sacrifices are continuing throughout the letter, that Judaism is still an accepted religion, an organized religion before the diaspora, and that Jerusalem is still the center of that religion. Second thing we have to know is that this letter is, is written to a predominantly Jewish population, a predominantly Jewish, maybe, church. These people knew their scriptures exceedingly well. There's, there's over 30 direct quotes from the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. There's, there's over 50 allusions to the Old Testament in these 13 chapters. So to understand this book, you really have to understand the Old Testament. So I just want to encourage you right now as we, as we progressively make our way through the book and we read the text before you come to worship, pause every time you read an Old Testament reference and go back and read it in context. You have to understand that to understand what the, God is saying here. And the third thing that we have to understand is the, these Jews, this Jewish population that he's writing to, are being severely tempted to leave the faith. The author has heard that these, these Jewish believers are starting to talk, starting to murmur and say, is it worth it? They're considering returning to Judaism, the old way they used to worship. So there's some type of pressure that is being put on this community, this Jewish community, perhaps by the neuronic persecutions. When Rome burned in 64 AD, the Caesar then, Nero, used the Christians as a scapegoat and blamed them and, and began this new wave of persecution against our brothers and sisters. It was pretty horrifying. And so they're beginning to feel the truth of what Jesus said 30 to 40 years earlier when he said, listen, no servant is above his master. If, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. They're starting to feel that pressure. And these Jewish Christians are starting to ask the question that you and I ask from time to time, if we're honest. We're, they're starting to ask the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is, is following Christ 
worth what I'm starting to pay. And high schoolers, I'm talking to you. You're starting to feel that pressure right now. You're starting to ask that question right now because it's not cool anymore to be a Christian. And you're starting to say, is it worth it? Your friends don't want to come to youth group with you anymore. And you start asking the question, is it worth it? Your friend group, are, they're starting to do things that you know doesn't honor God and is not the way God intended you to act or say or be. And you're going to start saying, is it worth it? My friends aren't calling me anymore. They don't want to hang out with me anymore. Is it worth it? And I have some news for you. I want to inform you of something. It doesn't stop when you get your graduation certificate. It's there in college. It's there in your 20s when you're starting to make your way in the world. It's in your 30s when you have a job that you think is secure. It's in your 40s. It's in your 50s. It's in your 60s when you start thinking about retirement. It's in your 70s when you're 80s when you're retired. It's in your 90s. It's there until the day you die. Is it worth it? You start being tempted into the Susan syndrome saying, what wonderful memories, but Christianity is kind of childish. And in many times and in various ways, we all ask that question, is Christ real or just a fancy? Is he worth all I have to sacrifice? The friends, the job, the prestige, the standing, the reputation. Is following Christ worth the additional pressure that comes with it? That's what the Jewish audience was starting to ask. They're tempted to go back to Judaism, return to the old ways, going back to the works-based kosher system, temple sacrifices. Gosh, that was much easier. To return to the old heroes, Moses and Joshua, to return to the old covenant, the old promises, the old assurances. What the author states right out of the gates is Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than all those things. Jesus is greater. Stuart Oliott, in his commentary, wrote, Nobody must despise the Old Testament, and listen to this, but nor must anyone overvalue it. It is genuine revelation, but the way that revelation came was sporadic, fragmentary, varied, progressive, in a word, incomplete. Incomplete without Christ. And the author says so in verse 1, Long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. 
I've named this sermon series Greater Than because that's what the author wants these Jews tempted to go back to Judaism to realize. Jesus is greater than anything and everything they're tempted to go back to. Greater than any angels, chapters 1 and 2. Superior to any other messenger that has ever come. Greater than the mediator Moses, chapter 3. We're going to look at, he's a better mediator of a covenant. Jesus is greater than any promised land rest. The Jews were looking always back to, oh, wasn't it great under David? We, could, we didn't have any war. We just, we just rested. We were in the land. We had milk and honey. Jesus is greater than that. Greater conqueror than Joshua in chapter 4. A greater king than Melchizedek in chapter 7. A greater high priest than any who had ever served. Takes three chapters to prove that. His sacrifice is greater than the temples. His blood purchases a greater covenant. His death gives us greater assurances, greater promises, greater guarantees. Now when we read this in 2018, we're not tempted to go back to temple sacrifices. At least sitting in my office this week, I wasn't tempted. Now maybe some of you are. But I'm guessing that most of us are not saying, gosh, isn't it, wouldn't it be great if, if Blake and the elders could get a bull and just do something here? We're not tempted that way. But we are tempted to go back to what these things represent. We're tempted to leave Christ and return to such things as money for security. Give me that rest. People for our reputation and value. Work for our purpose in life. Gossip for our position in society. Unforgiveness for the power that it keeps. Travel for our sense of adventure. We're tempted to return to our own works and not Christ's. Our own sacrifices, not Christ's our own comfortable promised lands and not Christ's, our own heroes and not the ultimate hero that Hebrews is written to to hold high, Jesus Christ. So the book of Hebrews has much to say to our 21st century sensibilities, to the Susans of the world, like you and me, who asked the question, is it really worth it? The book of Hebrews is written as an antidote for that. Secondly, the author wants to proclaim not only that Jesus is greater, but Jesus is God. Jesus is God. This life is long and difficult, And your and my faith is going to be tested. It's going to be tried in many ways, in various ways. And the is it worth it question never stops. The Susan syndrome is always around. And the author knows that spiritual perseverance can only come, can only be deepened by grasping the majesty of Jesus Christ. 
your perseverance comes when the difficult times hit you by knowing that Jesus is God. So the author takes five, takes time to list out five definitive statements in verses two and three, each of which I was sitting back there and going, gosh, each of which of these deserves a sermon in and of itself. Each one. And maybe there's a sermon series in our future. Because the author is making a strong case for the divinity of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 2. Long ago and at many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Heir of all things. That's the first one. Here the author uses an image that is well understood in Roman culture of the day. Inheritance. To convey that Jesus is God, he owns everything. Jesus is God, he owns everything. This picture is portrayed in in perhaps one of my favorite sections of scripture, Revelation 4 and 5, that, that, that picture that God gave John of heaven with God the Father sitting in the middle on the throne in the concentric circles of people praising him. In chapter 4, thousands upon thousands, countless people praising him. But then in chapter 5, in walks, as John puts it, one who looks like a lamb that was slain. And he walks up to God, and God is holding in his hand a scroll with seven seals on it. Do you remember this? And he takes that scroll. Now to you and me, that, that wouldn't mean much, but in, in, back in Roman times, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Roman law required that a will, a will had to be sealed seven times to protect it from tampering. Sealed with every wrap. And the seal could not be broken until the actual heir comes and takes it. And if you know the book of Revelation, you know in chapter 5 he takes it, and in chapter 6 he begins opening the seals, right? Now in chapter 5, John begins to weep because he, could not poss- who, he can't think of anybody possibly who is worthy to take that deed, which is the deed to the earth, the ownership of the earth. That's what God is holding. Who can take that? Who is worthy? And the lamb who is slain comes up and takes it out of his hand, begins to open it. He is worthy. The angel says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus rightfully takes the scroll from God because he is the rightful heir. Now he owns everything. He is God. He owns everything. That's what's being communicated there. Secondly, Jesus is also co-creator. Word says, through whom he also created the world. Paul puts it this way in in Colossians chapter 1. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. MacArthur says one of the greatest proofs of Jesus' divinity is his ability to create. Only God has the ability to create something out of nothing. Our puny brains can't even comprehend that, what nothing even looks like. But only God can create something out of nothing. When we create, we take something that is already created and create something new. When Satan creates, he takes something good that God created and warps it. Only God can create. I was so pleased to hear in Sunday school the the video we watched about just immersing yourself in the wonder of God and the glory of God so that you have that that you can pass on to your kids. And I was doing that this week when I was thinking about God creating, God creating the human body, that the heart and the human body pumps 800 million times, 800 million times in an average lifetime, and pumps enough blood to fill a tanker cars on a train from Boston to New York. Isn't that amazing? He created the human ear that amazingly converts air, uh, sound waves from air to liquid. Whose brain captures a lifetime of memories in a cubic half inch. That's amazing. He created everything from minute atoms and quarks and leptons and neutra, neutrinos, which have no measurable size to our galaxy, which is immeasurable in comprehension. 600 trillion miles across. We can't even think in those terms. And that's only one of which is 100 million galaxies containing another 100,000 million stars. We just have to kind of sit back and nod our head at that point. Jesus created it all. That's why every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and under the sea and all that was in them will someday sing this song. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Jesus is God. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Jesus is also the radiance of the glory of God. The third statement he makes because Carrie and I have been engaged in, in discussions with the Jehovah's Witnesses that have been coming around our home, I've been thinking a lot more specifically about Jesus as God, because that's one of their aberrant heretical beliefs, that Jesus is not God. He's just the first and greatest created being. So I've been doing a lot of thinking around this. And this verse is very helpful. Sorry to say the King James Version isn't very helpful, who being the very brightness of his glory. Nor are some other translations aren't very helpful here. Some of you have, he is the reflection 
of God's glory. I think radiance is very helpful here. He's the radiance of God's glory because there's a big difference between the sun and the moon. The moon reflects the sun's brightness. Without the sun, the moon is dark, dead, cannot be seen. The moon relies on the sun's light. Here he's saying, no, no, no. He's not reflecting anything. He's the actual source, too. He's the source of light. He's the radiance of God's glory. Jesus does not simply reflect God's glory. He's the source of it, just like the Father. And we see glimpses of this in Scripture with the transfiguration, right? His his glory is shown for a brief moment. When 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 Saul encounters them on the road to Damascus, do you remember that? The brightness of his glory is shown blinds Paul. See that in Revelation with the descriptions of Jesus. Jesus is not a secondary reflection of God. He's the radiating source, as the Nicene Creed put it so well, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. You see those those men who, who crafted those confessions were very specific. They knew what they were writing. Fourth, Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. The word picture here, given to us here, refers to a coin whose image is stamped. And the image on the coin exactly duplicates the image of the stamp. Or maybe better, a wax seal in a ring. The wax seal, once you press it into that soft wax from the ring, they're they're an exact copy of each other. The point is, when you see Jesus, you are seeing the Father. That's what he's trying to say. When you see how Jesus acts, you know how the Father acts because they're one and the same. When you know what Jesus is like, you know what the Father is like. That's why it's so silly to think of the God of the Old Testament, the Father is wrathful, and the God of the New Testament, Jesus is so nice. Just take 45 minutes this week and read Revelation. And you'll see what God the Father is like through his Son coming to judge the earth. So the author is challenging those Jews tempted to go back to Judaism. Why would you want to go back to the types and shadows when you have the very image of God in flesh here? He's imploring with them, why would you want to go back to the prophecies and promises when you have the fulfillment of them right here? Why would you want to go back to a God that you cannot see when God came and revealed himself in flesh? And lastly, Jesus upholds the universe by his word of his power. Colossians 1.17 says it this way, that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Many people When they read this, they think of Atlas. That's what came to my mind. He's upholding the world. That Greek titan who is condemned to bear the weight of the world on his shoulders forever. And the pictures of of him and the sculptures of him have him straining underneath the weight, you know, and the muscles bulging, keeping the world up. 
condemned to keep the world up. That image misses the mark on so many levels. Jesus is not passive in this, but he's active. Atlas is shown just keeping the world in place, but Jesus is involved in sustaining the world on every single level. Can you imagine if Jesus didn't keep the world tilted at 23 degrees? If Jesus did not keep the world at that 23 degree axis? Or if Jesus suddenly decided that the laws of gravity are not going to be laws of gravity anymore. Or that the earth's rotation would slow down half a mile an hour. All these things would would send chaos. Let's get spiritual for a second. Could you imagine if Jesus was not sustaining your faith in, in encouraging you to persevere. That's what Philippians is getting at. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Jesus is not passive but involved and he's not straining but he's powerful. I'm, I'm, I'm forever struck by our study back in Sunday school when I was studying through that and perhaps you were too in that place in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 when it talks about the Antichrist coming in the fear, in the panic. The Antichrist, he's going to come. He has a lot of power. And you remember what it says there? Jesus comes and with, how does he defeat him? With a breath of his mouth. And unlike Atlas, Jesus is not condemned to do this at all. But he's willing. And that brings us to our last point. Jesus is the only Savior. In verse 3 it says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you know what the author of the Hebrews is doing here? He's just giving shorthand for the gospel. It's a shorthand for the gospel. Jesus came and made purifications for all our sin. He willingly came. That's what, that's what we're celebrating. Why do we light these candles, these silly candles? Why do we call this Advent? Why do we celebrate this time of year? We are celebrating God willingly coming to save us. He wasn't coerced. His love propelled him into this world. Just like if your child is about to be hit by a car, your love propels you into the street. He came because we were helpless. Absolutely helpless. Helpless to live that kind of life that earns salvation. We're helpless to do that. We sin in word, thought, and deed every moment of every day. And so he lived that life for us. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 14, uh, 15, it says that yes, he was tempted in every way as we are yet was without sin. He lived the perfect life. 
And he was compelled to come not only because we were helpless against sin, but because we were helpless against the death penalty that sin is owed. We rebel against God every time we sin. And so what does that When we rebel against God, the payment of that is death. And Jesus came to take that death for us, dying on the cross. And then the writer says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus rose again on the third day in conquering sin, death, and Satan. And now has a place of honor and power in heaven. What the writer wants his readers to know is that belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Paul wrote it another way. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. There's only one way to get out of this life alive. And that's through Jesus Christ. Now the author starts out saying these three things and being very clear about Jesus being the only way because the consequences of turning your back on Jesus are dire. That's what makes the book of Hebrews, if you've been reading it ahead, and I hope you do, and I encourage you to do that, if you're reading ahead, it's a scary book to read because there are so many warnings in it. Warnings like, we must be, pay careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, the gospel, so that we do not drift away. How can we escape if we ignore such a salvation? It's a tough rhetorical question. Or in chapter 6, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. In other words, they've been living as a Christian if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. It's a tough warning. Or Or chapter 10, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no sacrifice left for sin, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. You see, Susan's syndrome has consequences. The stakes could not be higher. If Jesus is the only Savior, turning away from him is not only foolish and dangerous, but it is tragic. been said many times every good movie contains the gospel I was reminded of this as I was watching the Polar Express with my kids this past week it's a fantastical journey of a group of children to the North Pole to visit Santa to get the first gift of Christmas right all the children believe except one a boy that we're never given the name of The great reversal in this movie happens when that boy actually receives the first gift of Christmas. A bell 
off of Santa's sleigh. And only kids who believe in Santa can hear the ringing of the bell. And as he begins to shake it, he begins to hear the ringing of the bell. He begins to believe. And to those who don't believe, the bell is silent. The last line of the movie always gets me. The boy is reflecting back after Christmas Day where he receives the bell back after losing it. And he says this, At one time, most of my friends could hear the bell. But as years passed, it fell silent for them. Even my sister Sarah found that one Christmas, she could no longer hear its sweet sound. Though I've grown old, the bell still rings for me. The consequences of Susan syndrome are tragic. The author of the Hebrews writes this letter to keep the bell ringing for us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Bless our time in your book that you preserve for us. May it strengthen us in faith and challenge us to walk more perfectly in your footsteps with a desire in our heart to please you. In Jesus' name, amen.